Well, her introductions are better than yours. So I have a request. If there are subsequent visits, I want Becky to introduce me. I always look forward to coming here. I, I really do. Um, and I was thinking I probably said this in previous visits, uh, since this is the river, uh, it always reminds me of an old axiom that says that no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. And I think that's true. Um, I, I know for some that might sound a bit trivial, but if you ruminate on that a while, uh, you re- realize the depth of that truth, don't you? Um, I have chosen a text from one of Paul's letters, his letter to the church at Rome. And if you would like, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. And while you're turning there... Uh, I want to be sure that you understand this up front, that I have been somewhat reticent about taking this particular text because, in my opinion, it has been taken out of context by so many and misinterpreted, especially in um, reference to the often quoted verse 28, for we know, for we know. All things work together for the good, for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And you probably would agree with me that particular text is quoted so often that it's almost worn smooth with familiarity. And I wonder sometimes when we dial that up, if we really know the broader context of that. Um, I have been guilty of this, and I'm sure you've been convicted of it as well, that there are certain verses that we have made certain assumptions about only to find out in time that we had misapplied them. Mm-hmm. Now, I hope I have your attention to this point uh, because I intend on saying some things that, that could potentially be rather disruptive. And that's appropriate because we are living in a very disruptive time. Uh, I've been saying this in the last few places that I've been to in the, in the last several weeks that we got some interference there. Okay. Um, that we have had a certain orientation and now we're in a time of disorientation that is ultimately leading us to a reorientation of things. And I don't want that to sound just like I'm trying to be clever because we could spend a great deal of time just with those concepts. It's true, isn't it, that we tend to find comfort in certain orientations. And people everywhere the question seems to continue to surface is that when will we get back to normal? I personally don't believe that we are going to experience, so to speak, a factory reset. I think that what we are evolving into is an entirely different norm, a new norm, if you will. 
Now, I hope that that witnesses with you. I want to repeat it again. Orientations ultimately lead to disorientation, and that disorientation is of necessity to lead us to a reorientation. If we had time, we could go through the scripture and give you uh, a number of examples that illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, last week, my, my mind began to turn to the words of Charles Dickens in his book, A Tale of Two Cities. Have you ever read Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities? And this is probably the best known uh, script from that particular book, and it goes like this. And it sounds very much like where we are right now because so many people have totally lost their equilibrium. There is so much uncertainty is certainly airborne to a great degree, isn't it? And uh, I've said this, I said this in, in uh, Rochester, Minnesota last weekend, and I might get the same response from you that I got from them, that I've come to the uh, conclusion that the opposite of faith is not necessarily doubt, but the opposite of faith is certainty. And so Dickens says, it was the best of times, you'll recognize this, I'm sure. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. And it was the winter of despair. This guy sounds like he's as confused as a termite in a yo-yo, doesn't he? <laughs> but you can, you can hear the vacillation, can't you? You can... You can hear the uncertainty in that. And he's trying, I think, in this novel to land in a place where he can be grounded. So let's read the text in Romans chapter 8. I'm reading from the ESV, beginning with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We've heard this reference so many times, haven't we? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to uh, corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope, now hope that is seen is not hope. For hopes, for who hopes, for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then the verse that I referenced earlier. And we know in verse 28, we know for those that love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I think you probably would agree with me that right now, probably now than ever before, that we are almost drowning in a sea of information, just being flooded by information. 
and we hear so many references to misinformation, right? Uh, Mark Twain said many, many years ago, he said, those who read the newspaper are misinformed and those who don't read it are uninformed. And um, I think that was as true then as it is now. But the problem that I am experiencing and I'm greatly concerned about is that with all of this proliferation of information, this tsunami almost of information, that wisdom seems to be being cut in half at the same time, making it increasingly more difficult to spot misinformation. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm getting too far out in the weeds here, and I'm not you know, necessarily somebody that is all caught up in deep state and some conspiracy theories by any means, even though I think we need to pay attention to some of those things. I really do. Some of you, I can already feel your concern for me. I will assure you, I I will assure you that I am concerned about where we are right now, but I refuse to be consumed. Absolutely, I'm concerned. So don't think I'm in denial. Don't think I'm taking a flippant attitude about our present state, but I do understand that our present state does not reflect our ultimate fate. And if you were paying any attention to what I just read to you in that text, you know that to be true. But we are desperate for certainty. Am I talking to the right group of people? You know, one man said it is easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. And I probably said this on previous visits, but I believe it to be true in the lyrics of a very uh, well-known song, especially in pop culture. The title of the song is Waiting on the World to Change. And in this particular song, one of the most captivating phrases is simply this. They own all the news so they can bend it all they want while we're waiting on the world to change. I think that we now, more than ever before, are coming through this disorientation into a reorientation where we're coming back to the only foundation that cannot be removed. The earth is shaking, it's sure. I'm stating the obvious. The earth is certainly shaking. But there is one thing that will never be removed. Again, I'm even reticent to go to the passages that, we, passages that we've heard so much until it almost slides off us like Teflon in Hebrews 12. That says everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that only those things that cannot be shaken will remain so that we might be a part, partake in this unshakable kingdom. Pardon me for getting too passionate. No, I don't. Apologize for that. I'm just fed up with the way that I see how worry has totally hijacked our imagination. I mean, we use our imaginations all the time, don't we? We might as well use them for the reason that God gave them to us for. And most of the things that we fear, we rarely fear what we think we fear. We fear what it's linked to. Does that make sense to you? Now, I'm going to take a risk here, and and you know me. uh, Those of you that are hearing me for the first time, you're getting oriented. Um, 
but uh, people have heard us uh, on previous visits, you know this to be true of me. And, um, you know, I'm wondering where the voices of reason are, where the true prophets are. Because when we turn the page coming into 2020, and I don't mean by any means to sound like I'm being critical, but isn't it interesting that there were a lot of things that are being prophesied, especially with this being conveniently the year 2020. And everyone, it seems almost inanely, jumps on this imagery. And if you were guilty of that, there is therefore now no condemnation. (laughs) to those who have made a mistake. That's 8 verse 1 of this chapter. All right? But, oh, we were supposed to see everything with crystal clarity, right? This year, it was going to be in high definition and surround sound. And now that is such a faint thing. It's almost comical in nature, isn't it? We find ourselves groping But I believe, as I was talking about living more imaginatively, is that the prophetic and that word, oh my, how much it has been watered down and how exclusive it has become to individuals and even tribal thinking. But the true prophet, if you go back through the Old Testament and you see what their M.O. is. They were imaginative thinkers. They didn't just try to interpret things from the face value, but they were able to see. Here's the word. It's a better word than prophet as far as I'm concerned, is a seer, which they were able to see through what was. And the prophet should have that kind of imagination, especially when ours has been shrunk so terribly. So I read this statement recently uh, by Noam Chomsky. He's a guy that has studied uh, sociological trends. And I want you to listen to this very closely. I'm reading it to you so that I don't butcher it. But see if it sounds familiar to you. The primary element of social control is the strategy of distraction, which is to divert public attention from important issues and changes determined by the political and economic elites by the technique of flooding continuous distractions and insignificant information. Does that sound familiar to anybody? The distraction strategy is essential to prevent public interest in the essential knowledge. Maintaining public attention diverted away from the real social problems, captivated by matters of no real importance, and he ends by saying, keep the public busy, 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 busy with no time to think. Wow. Yeah. So again... I don't want you to misunderstand me. I am concerned, but I refuse to be concerned. I recognize that there is a dominant narrative right now that in many ways is trying to dominate us. And I think that we're being all being put on trial to see if we are practical atheists. Well, that went over really well. <laughs> 
It's true, isn't it, when we are living in, in the midst of a crisis that our unbelief insists on total knowing. It's in the middles. It's in the middles that extremes clash. And this is where ambiguity restlessly rules, doesn't it? And I hear this. I hear this in the tone of what Paul is saying here to believers 2,000 years ago. And because truth is timeless, it's just as relevant now as it was then. So here I finally get to what my, my, my subject is. The question, my subject is in the form of a question. Is God in control? Ostensibly, we would say, absolutely, God is in control. In fact, the default statement of most believers when tragedy or crisis occurs is, God is in control. Or, God has got this. And I would challenge that idea on the basis of what Paul says in this passage of Scripture. See, we would say, yes, he is in control. Now, some of you are going to have to really stay with me in this sharp turn. Okay? Otherwise, you will assume I'm saying something that I'm not. God is sovereign. He rules over all, in all, and through all. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. That's a, a very elementary description of his sovereignty. He rules over all, in all, and through all. Or we have been made familiar with the omnis of God, that he is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. That's why he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't mean that he will be the same Tomorrow, in our forever, it means that he is in all those places at the same time. And if you can explain that to me, please, I want to make an appointment with you. <laughs> but when the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that doesn't mean that he was consistent yesterday, he's consistent today, and he will be in our tomorrow. No, it means he is in that all the time. Because God doesn't live in time. And that's our problem. Is God doesn't live in time, but he manifests his purposes in time. That's another subject. So here's, here's the thing that for me is problematic. And I think some of you are probably already tracking with me. The belief that God is all-powerful does not mean that God exercises all power. So I didn't say that he wasn't all-powerful but I don't believe that he exercises all power. It only means that God is the ultimate source of power. What does that have to do with the text? Well, in verses 18 to 25, there's a lot of upheaval there, isn't there? And we'll address that a little further in a moment. There's a lot of upheaval there in much the same way that we're experiencing right now. Well, if God is sovereign, why is he not involved in this situation to the degree that we feel that he should? Because he recognizes that fallen people may have the ability to control others and, to, and then they, as a result, attempt to project that control on him. You see, in, in all that we try to, in all the words that we use to ascribe to God, 
the ultimate is that he is love. Would you agree with that? That is not something he's capable of. That's not something that flows from him. That is his entire essence. That is his being. It, this is totally apart from his, all, his omnipotence, how he is all-powerful. Even the cross itself reveals his sovereignty. Whenever, if we go back to the, the narrative concerning the cross, you remember when he's on trial in this kangaroo court. He's already been through one with Caiaphas and Annas, and now he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate is looking at him and saying, do you not understand that I hold your life in my hand, that I have the authority to set you free. He says, listen, you don't have any authority over me, over that which is given to you from above. Now, Jesus could have exercised his power in that moment, but he didn't. So was Jesus in control? Was Jesus in control? Or did he, it's somewhat of a paradox, isn't it? He was in control, but he wasn't because he allowed himself to go through something that he was not deserving of. This is really what unconditional love looks like. It absorbs all of the vitriolic emotion of man and transforms it. It doesn't try to coerce. It doesn't try to control a situation. What I'm trying to say to you in, in plain English is that God is not controlling. That's right. Is he in control? Let me put it to you this way. In Psalm 115, you probably know this verse of scripture. It says, the heaven and the heavens of heavens are his, but the earth he has given to the children of men. It's probably one of the greatest expressions of his true essence and his love is that he allows us to reject him. He allows us to make these decisions even though it is in the range of his power to control the outcome. He doesn't. Interesting, isn't it? See, to me, I think if we had time to spend, you know, you know, a few minutes here unpacking this further, I think that this would probably solve a lot of the confusing things that many of you experience on an individual level. That, you know, we're not going to take time to get into trying to understand the source of evil or the path of evil. Did God create evil? No, I don't, I'm not saying that God created evil. But in the scope of his sovereignty, he was able to create a universe, a material, visible universe, where the possibility of it could exist. And because of his omniscience and knowing all things, he is able to take that which appears, remember 828, for all things work together, not most things, all things work together for the good, for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And ultimately, he wins. Ultimately, he wins. I love what Paul says. I mean, his brilliance continues to astound me. In Corinthians, whenever he says, if the princes of this world had known, (laughs) they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
So was he in control in that situation? Yes and no. He was, yet he was not in control in that situation. Many people in the church have been taught that divine sovereignty is synonymous with this kind of unilateral control. And some have argued that if God is not in control of everything, then some, something must be in control of him. Others have proposed that God is not sovereign over all, that he has no sovereignty at all. Is this too heady? I think it's really important right now that we begin to think more deeply about these things. Otherwise, we're going to come to wrong conclusions about God and what he is permitting. Or we're going to subscribe to the escapist mentality that we have our bags packed and we're just waiting on our flight out. That is an escapist and defeatist mentality. That is an affront to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If, you know, how dare we stand up and talk about him reigning and ruling, yet we are just here, holed up eventually in caves, eating our tribulation food heated over Bunsen burners. No, Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation. We need, see, this really goes across the grain in a lot of the venues that I go to. We need now a more biblical understanding of what suffering is than we have ever needed before. Can I just pause here long enough to tell you And if you can get this, I promise you will help you. This is not something I've read in a book. This is something that is experiential for me. In this world, you shall have tribulation. Peter says that we would suffer, right? Listen, I'm not aggrandizing suffering. Does he believe in healing? Absolutely. Does he believe that with some people that when they become sick and afflicted, it's the will of God? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But suffering is a part of the life human curriculum. Whether it's mental, emotional, physical, relational, are we still on the same page? So we cannot adopt this denial theology, can we? So here's here's what I want to help you with. Are you interested in it? I believe that if suffering is inevitable, and you've heard it said that misery is optional, right? (laughs) True. But if suffering is inevitable, is it possible that it is exacerbated even more as a result of us being attached to expected outcomes? Did you hear what I just said? I believe that to be true. Yes, we're going to suffer, but the suffering is intensified. It is prolonged. It sometimes devastates our faith. Why? It has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with us having an attachment to expected outcomes. 
How many of you right now, on an individual level, or as you're looking at what's going on in the world right now, you didn't expect this. Remember 2020. We're going to have 2020 vision. (laughs) Where are your expectations now? This became really, really clear in an experience my wife and I had just a few months ago where there was someone that was miraculously healed of a brain tumor only to die 60 days later, supposedly a diagnosis of COVID. This was devastating. This was devastating. And this is when we begin to sort through the process. This is where we begin to ask God the hard questions, knowing, and I, I, if there's anything... I have delighted in discovering in the last few years about God is that he is not intimidated. He is not offended when you ask him the raw, hard questions. Have you ever read the Psalms? In fact, he's waiting on you to do that as long as you suppress it. As long as you suppress it and you don't express it. What you're doing is detrimental to your own soul. But when you have the courage to know that he knows what you're thinking before you ever think it. And he wants you to say what you're thinking. And to know that he is not offended by that. Really, it is the next step to growing in faith. That's so counterintuitive to most of us, isn't it? I don't believe that God's sovereignty in any way restricts his omnipotence. I think that in all of this, that he has to allow this in order to continue to reflect his true motives and intentions. Power is about having choices, isn't it? God chose to create an open creation that's the reason why I got I to hasten on here and come back to what he said. Look at it in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage. Hmm. Creation is groaning. That's... That certainly, I'm sure, was relevant to the, the believers that he was writing to 2,000 years ago, but it's certainly relevant to us right now more than ever before. There's a parade of hurricanes in the Atlantic that have been spawned. There are cities on fire. There's rioting like anything we have seen in decades. There's economic instability and uncertainty. These are the most polarizing times that I've ever seen in my entire life. And while I agree with the admonition to be responsible and accountable as a citizen of this country, I assure you that our politician is not necessarily our Messiah. And I will tell you, as much as I'm thankful For this country, and I have a passport, and I have a birth certificate, but this is not the greatest nation on the earth. That may be the rhetoric of politicians to rally and mobilize people, 
But I want you to understand how that's heard by other nations around the world as being absolute hubris and pride. Because he is not partial to one nation. Come on now. Because he's redeemed us out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. If we use, listen, if we're going to use the word kingdom, it's not a kingdom that has been westernized. And that's not a political statement at all. It's not a kingdom that has been westernized. We need to think in terms of global solidarity. You talked to people from Israel last night and from Africa last night, as you mentioned. This is what they're crying out for. They're crying out for a solidarity. And I think that many of them understand far better than we do that this country is not the savior of the world. Jesus is. There's only one king. While we are pledging our allegiance to the donkey or to the elephant, God is waiting on somebody that will pledge their allegiance to the lamb. I do understand how risky that is to use that kind of language because people are already poised. They have a filter. They are already poised to interpret that in light of their particular persuasion. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about the king of kings. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. And we don't have a soon coming king. We have a king who is coming. He won't be king when he arrives. <laughs> no. I love the psalm that says, are you still tracking with me? I love the psalm that, that, that set, puts it this way. I think it's Psalm 2 that says, the heathen rage and they imagine a vain thing. But God sits in the heavens and he laughs. <laughs> mm. Creation is groaning. And he uses the metaphor of intense labor pains, doesn't he? As if she's in childbirth. And we ourselves. I think maybe we're about to catch up with the same frequency of contractions that the earth has been in. Because what he was referring to was didn't just start 2,000 years ago. And it didn't just start with Jesus coming down off the Mount of Olives after the Olivet Discourse and talking about the end of that age, but it started all the way back in the Genesis. And so, listen, you talk about a protracted period of contractions. And the reason why it's important for me to make that point, and this rubs people wrong in a lot of ways, is that every generation that has preceded us has assumed that they were the terminal generation. I mean, some of you are old enough and been walking with the Lord long enough to know that that was true. That not more than a generation ago, they believed this is the final generation. And the generation before them, the same thing. Going back to the Depression and the turn of the century, going back to the Civil War, all of them have believed the same thing. And all this is doing is amounting to how the contractions are increasing in intensity and in frequency. And so what does that mean? I mean, you know, Jesus even talks about it. Is in John chapter 14, I believe, he uses this metaphor as well. And he talks about how that uh, 
there is this travail. And I think that truth precipitates travail. And he likens it to a woman. But she is not fixated on that and focused on that because as soon as the child is born, the joy causes all that to dissipate into thin air. Is the joy of the Lord really our strength? Really? Is the joy of the Lord really our strength? Is God in control? Or is he waiting for sons and daughters to mature to the point that they are able to step up and partner with him as you referenced as co-conquerors? I think that's probably what he's waiting for. In fact, I know that's what he's waiting for. And he said that we should be on, one translation says that we should be up on our tiptoes in expectation. Yeah. That's the reason why there's so much groaning going on. That's the reason why that, you know, there are all these culture wars that are going on. In Matthew 16, I'll close with this. In Matthew 16, you remember this exchange, I'm sure. And the reason why that my mind began to to gravitate to it lately is because I can't remember a time in my entire life where I've heard the word pandemic used with as much frequency. I mean, come on. Did you hear the word pandemic before 2020? Rarely, and if you did, it was in some other part of the world, correct? Or it was some vague, obscure reference in history, correct? But now this word is in our vocabulary almost every day, right? And oddly enough, the word pandemic is in the same family of words as pandemonium and panic. And some of you are already wondering, I can tell, what does that have to do with this well-known exchange that takes place between Jesus and the disciples in Matthew chapter 16? You know what? I won't read it. It says, Jesus asked the question. And I love the way that he would toy with them like this. He said, who... Hey, guys, who are people saying that I am? Was Jesus insecure about his identity? What are people saying about me? And the responses were very, right? Some say you're John the Baptist, reincarnate. I'll use that word. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elias. Some say you're Jeremiah's. Now, listen to me. What I would take away from that, especially in present application, is that everybody has a different perspective on how Jesus is going to reveal himself in, the, in those days as well as in these days. You get that? Some say Jeremiah's, the weeping prophet, right? Some say Elias, the one who calls fire down on the prophets of Baal. Some say John the Baptist, the guy who only has one message, and that's repent. Do you see the connection? That's what they were saying then. That's essentially what they're saying now. And why? 
because we are living in apocalyptic times. Another word that has been hijacked, misused, and abused. Whenever in the broader culture and in the church culture the word apocalypse is used, people immediately assume that the connotation of that word is some cataclysmic event that we are moving at an accelerated rate toward. That's not what the word means. The last book of the Bible in English is called Revelation. It's apocalypso, which means an unveiling or a disclosing. He is revealing himself and he's revealing us to ourselves. We are in a time of apocalypse, but that does not mean that we should be losing our minds because everything is going to implode. Our way of living, our economy, our ability to worship together and to gather and on and on and on and on and on it goes. No, it's a different type of unveiling. It's a different type of apocalypse. Maybe that was a stretch for some of you, but it's true. And so Jesus, I believe, this is an apocalyptic moment. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? There's all these opinions. And you've got all these people out there right now that have their different opinions about what all this means and what the ultimate outcome is. And I will say this to you as well for everybody that is longing to go back to normal. Okay? I mentioned that earlier, yeah. but I forgot to tell you this. <laughs> a few weeks ago, the word came to me, and in the context of these thoughts that I'm talking about, and I wasn't sure what it meant. The word nostalgia oh, came God. to me. And I thought, I, I think I know what nostalgia means. You know, it's looking back in time at these defining moments, correct? I mean, there are these iconic pictures that we all are familiar with. Like, for example, whenever World War II was over and the picture of the anonymous sol- sailor, I guess it was. Remember in Times Square? And you can't see their face. That's an iconic image. And they're kissing and there's ticker tape falling. And that was a nostalgic time because Hitler was defeated, correct? And our boys came home. There's several images that summon nostalgic ideas. But I thought I understood that. You say, what does that have to do with wanting to go back to norm? Thanks for asking. (laughs) The word nostalgia was coined in the 17th century. And it was coined by a field doctor that was out with Swiss soldiers and he began to notice something about these young men that had been away from their families, some of them for four or five years. He noticed that they became listless. He noticed that some of them began to manifest in their body sicknesses for which there was no diagnosis. And the word nostalgia is a compound word in the Latin which means homesick or heart sick. They were wanting to go back to what they were familiar with. And I am seeing that, that negative aspect of nostalgia beginning to seep in amongst 
the community of faith. Oh, I want to go back to it. You see, he won't let you go back because you're in disorientation right now to lead you to a reorientation. Sometimes everything has to fall apart so that better things can come together. Where's your expectation? Remember, that's what he's talking about, expectation. So, after Jesus gets these varied responses, it's a real unveiling, it's an apocalyptic moment. Then Jesus says, "What? Well, who do you say that I am? Remember? Who do you say that I am? And the man who had a mouth shaped like a foot... Most of the time, the most unlikely one, I think it not only shocked him, but it shocked all of his colleagues, his peers. You're the Christ. I have to think in that moment, as soon as it came out, you've had those experiences, haven't you? When suddenly something came out of your mouth that was so riveting, correct? And it was so pregnant with truth. And when it came out of your mouth... It shocked you. (laughs) What did I just say? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know what Jesus said? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. I mean, there's there's a telling thing about why he called him Simon Barjona, but we got to move on. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. This man is pretty much illiterate. He's an ignorant fisherman. And so he didn't get this through reading. He didn't get this through accumulated knowledge. He didn't get this through teaching. It came in an instant. And he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we all have heard that reference for years. But see, you got to understand that it's not only what Jesus said, but where he said it that is really important. Because at Caesarea Philippi, he chose to ask those questions. He had not asked them prior, and he didn't ask it a few days later. He chose to ask when they came to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, it was named by a Caesar, but before that, it was known as a pagan epicenter. The largest, possibly the largest rock formation. Now, remember, see in juxtaposition to what Jesus said. The largest rock formation in all of Israel was there in Caesarea Philippi. And there was this massive cave that the pagans believed was the gate to the underworld. And at certain seasons, they would summon. Here's where the word originated. Pan, this mythological god that was half goat and half man. Now, the interesting thing about it and, and, and there were all kinds of debauchery that was committed in these attempts to summon these spirits from the bowels of the earth, this place that they call the gates of hell. See, it gives it all new meaning, doesn't it? Because to me, the gates of hell are not somewhere 6,000 miles away in the Middle East. To me, the gates of hell, because gates are all, see, these are all, all symbols and images. The gates, you will see all the way through Scripture, has to do with defenses, right? It has to do not only with defenses, but this is the place where the elders would sit, men that had wisdom that were able to discern. 
able to discern. They sat in the gates. The word Pan is this mythological God, half goat, half man. And what he was known for was terrorizing and scattering herds of sheep. We have a whole principality and power right now that is at play that is trying to herd people like sheep and scatter them. Hence a pandemic. So Jesus' words were relevant then. They're certainly relevant now, aren't they? But where are these gates? They're not somewhere 6,000 miles away in the Middle East. The gates are really narrow gates. They're the gates between your ears, the eye gate, the ear gate. That's why I said discernment is so important right now because you've got five natural senses. You all have also have five spiritual senses. And the, sp- the spiritual sense that you have of discernment is equivalent to your sense of smell. And the reason why that we have a sense of smell is it gives us the ability to detect things that cannot be seen or heard or felt. Anybody want an enhancement of your discernment this morning? Do you? Do you understand that with all this upheaval, with all with all of the messiness that is going on right now, it has everything in the world to do with us being able to discern and to see it from God's expected end. Is he in control? It may not look like it right now. But he will get what he wants. Even though he lets us have what we want for a while because ultimately he wins. I'm so encouraged by my own teaching this morning. I'm so encouraged. I didn't say that to get you to applaud, but I appreciate it. This is where we this is this is the kind of mindset that we've got to have. Otherwise you will lose your mind. While everybody else is losing theirs. Amen. Why don't you stand? <clears throat> Paul says that if a trumpet gives forth an uncertain sound, how shall they prepare for battle? And I know that he was talking about that in the context of the abuse of tongues in the classic first century church in Corinth. But I think it also has to do with us being able to hear clear prophetic voices. Voices of reason. Amen? Amen. Father, we say it again and again and again and again, and it almost, we, our language just absolutely languishes when we are trying our best to express to you that we know that you are good. Yes, you are. And I ask that you would begin to increase and enhance the discernment of your sons and daughters. Because they have to walk every day in atmospheres of despair, 
and depression. They have to walk among people that have been muzzled. Because, Lord, this, this to me is not just a reflection of us using common sense and listening to the science and keeping ourselves as much as possible from being vulnerable to disease. But, Lord, it also, as I walked through the airport last week in Atlanta, thousands of people walking by, and there was none of the ambient noise. I couldn't hear people talking. Nobody was talking. I couldn't see any smiles. Thousands of people in these concourses traveling all over the world. And I looked at them and I thought, they've been muzzled. But Lord, we will not be muzzled. See, don't please, I keep saying this, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, listen, I'll put one on. I do, I comply. I'm not, I'm not trying to be defiant. I'm just trying to help you to understand that these things are happening at a deeper level. And we, as your sons and daughters, are entitled to walk in discernment in these uncertain times. And we lift our hands all over this room if you have the courage to do so. And we believe for the intensifying and the increasing of our discernment in the name of Jesus. And our expectancy remains in hope. In hope. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. Well, that was a mouthful, wasn't it? <laughs> um, thank you, Randall. That was a really very timely word. Yeah. Let's give him another hand. And now we're going to have an offering for him. Uh, if you'd like to make an offering to Randall, uh, you can make it to the church if you want to write a check or if you want to use a credit card, you can go on and we have him on the credit card. So let's just take a minute here and uh, Tommy and there's a couple of people are going to have a basket. Tommy and Bobby. Yeah, that was great, wasn't it? Kathy mentioned uh, one of the couple of the symptoms of uh, COVID is your loss of smell, right? That's your discernment, loss of taste. Isn't that interesting? That's spiritual, right? It's trying to tell us something. So, Lord, we really want that discernment. Amen? We need it. Jack it up, Lord. Yeah. Go ahead and do the, let's do the offering thing here. That was really good. I enjoyed that. Yeah, I love these thought-provoking, challenging messages like that. It was really good. It's a word in season. And we'll give all the money to Randall that we receive here, obviously. Because that's what we do. We want to thank everybody for coming. And we want to thank the worship team. Thank the interpreter in there, trying to keep up with Randall. I'm sure that was fun. <laughs> yeah, amen. Woo, thank you, Lord. The Lord's good, though, isn't he? I'm, t- I'm really, that, that was an encouraging word for me. I'm telling you. He said, said some really awesome things. I feel that God really wants to cause our hope to come alive and start believing again. Amen? But not believing from going back to what was, but going into what is, what God has. Amen? All right, let me pray for you and, and be dismissed. I'll let Tommy finish. He's Thank you, Tommy and Bobby. Well, Lord, we just thank you for the day. We pray you would 
I pray that this is good ground these words fell on. Yeah, we want fruit in our life. And in particular, we want this fruit of discerning, to be able to discern the voice of the Lord. Lord, we ask you to do what you did for Peter that day. You would drop revelation into us. And we would be able to see and hear what you're saying and come into agreement with heaven, Lord. That's our, our dream is that our words and our lives would be in agreement with heaven. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for God the Father. And we thank you for the Holy Ghost. Be blessed in the name of Jesus. Amen.